That's awesome stuff. Take your Bibles, let's turn to Matthew chapter 3. There's about a a 30-year gap between Matthew 2.23 and Matthew 3.1. Matthew 2.23, or Matthew chapter 2, ends with Jesus being brought back by Joseph and Mary to live in Nazareth, and Jesus would have been a, a year or two, perhaps. And in Matthew 3, John the Baptist comes preaching in the wilderness of Judea, Luke identifies the beginning of John's ministry, and he would have been about 29 or 30 years old. So about 30 years has passed. John preaches a very basic, simple message that we we see in these first couple of verses. In those days, John the Baptist preached in the wilderness of Judea, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And what I want to do this morning is, is talk about these two things. Talk about the kingdom and then talk about repentance. Because both of these are integral to what takes place as Matthew continues on. Once Jesus appears uh, in, the, in the next few passages, he begins his ministry and his teaching and his work, eventually goes to the cross, dies on the cross, is buried, is raised from the dead, ascends, sends out his... Uh, his apostles, the Great Commission. It's all about these two ideas of the kingdom of God and repentance. So let's let's pray and then we'll look at these. Father, we thank you for this time this morning. We ask that you would bless us with understanding and with clarity. We lift up those this morning, Lord, who are out because of illness, uh, travel, and ask that you would remind them of your love for them. And grant us your favor of understanding the word and believing it. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. Well, John the Baptist comes preaching in the wilderness of Judea. John has a a basic message and a basic response. John's message is the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's John's message. The response is uh, repent. And so we see the answer to two questions. What on earth is God doing? And how on earth should we respond? What on earth is God doing? Well, he is bringing his kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's the core of Jesus' preaching. It's the core of John's preaching. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, just let me make the point. Most of the time, Matthew uses the phrase kingdom of heaven. He uses kingdom of God uh, a handful of times. Uh, it's synonymous to kingdom of God. Kingdom in he- of heaven and kingdom of God are the same basic term. Uh, Matthew uses kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, much more than Mark and Luke. John uses kingdom of God a couple of times. Uh, about a third of the time, Matthew uses kingdom of heaven. There's a parallel in Mark or Luke for kingdom of God. So they're synonymous terms. Uh, I mention that because there are, there are people who teach that the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven are different things, and they're not. Biblically, they're the same. The kingdom of heaven is uh, an inner reality. Kingdom of heaven is an inner 
reality. So Jesus says in Matthew 6.33, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you with the kingdom. So we seek the kingdom today because uh, it's something that can be obtained today. It's something that can be found today. In Mark, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God now like a child shall not enter it. And, And by these statements and others, Jesus means that you and I are to personally submit ourselves to the rule of God from the heart. The idea of a kingdom in Scripture is not the idea first of land and a territory. First and foremost, the idea of a kingdom is the right and the power and the authority to rule. We even see that in history. After Herod the Great had gone to Rome, he was named king of Judea by Caesar. He was named king of Judea. He was given the right and the authority and the power to rule. And then Caesar said, now you have to go win your kingdom. And Herod went back to Israel and literally went to war to win his own kingdom. But he'd already been given the right by Caesar to reign. And there's an interesting parallel. We see the same thing with Jesus. Jesus is named king of the Jews, king of kings, lord of lords. But when he comes, there's widespread rebellion. So that... First thing with kingdom is the right and the power to rule. And he does that within our hearts. The kingdom is an inner reality. You and I as Christians, in a sense, are those who have been conquered by the king of kings. He came to us individually. He conquered us individually. He broke down our sin. He put an end to our rebellion. And he did so through all of his authority and all of his power and all of his love. And now he calls for us to live within the reality of that. Nobody is born in the kingdom of God. We are born into the domain of darkness, Colossians 1.13 says. And God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. So to be a Christian means to be made a subject of God's kingdom under the rule and the reign of the Lord Jesus Christ according to the will of God as as we see it in his word. It is an inner reality. It's something within us. And you know that. You know that when you're around unbelievers, they're living according to a different rule. They're living according to a different law. We're to live according to God's law in this world, in this earth. And that's why with all the partisanship within politics that we see around us uh, and what's taking place even now in Washington, D.C. is the very definition of partisan politics on both sides. We're told in 2 Timothy 2, or 1 Timothy 2, pray for kings and all who are on authority. Who was the king when Paul said to Timothy, pray for kings and all who are in authority? Nero. Nero. Uh, An equivalent would be Stalin. Adolf Hitler. God says, as my people, you are called to live in the reality of my kingdom. And so the kingdom of God being an inner reality, 
<coughs> is also a present reality. Jesus is my king right now. Not, not because I have this concept that makes him my king, but because he is my king. If you're in Christ, Jesus is your king today. He is your Lord today. He is that. The old teaching that some of you may have heard that you have to receive Jesus as Savior and then you have to decide to make Jesus Lord of your life is absurd. You cannot make him Lord. He is Lord by virtue of his resurrection. Philippians 2 says, Having humbled himself to the point of death, God raised him up and gave him the name that is above every name. He has that by rights. He's not your Lord because you make him your Lord. He's your Lord because he is your Lord. And that's a present reality. John the Baptist preaches in Matthew chapter 2, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In John 4.17, after Jesus has gone through his time of, of tempting, it says in verse 17, From that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus in Matthew 10.7 tells his disciples, Go and preach that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It is present. It is here. In Matthew 12.28, Jesus says, But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. There is a present reality to the kingdom of God. It is internal within us been born again and who have been made subjects of that kingdom, transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son, and that means it is present now. And you and I as Christians are to live within the light of that present kingdom. At the same time, the kingdom is an external reality. That is, it is not just a concept. It's not just a, an attitude that we have. It's not something that just exists in our heart, but exists in physical space as a true kingdom. At this very moment, it is a kingdom that is ruled in heaven. Heaven is not a concept. It is a real place. It's spiritual. It doesn't have physical dimension, but it is a spiritual place that God created. Before creation, it wasn't that there was God and God lived in heaven. Before creation, there is God and nothing else. Heaven itself is created by God at the moment of creation, and he established his throne there among the angels, and he has ruled ever since over heaven without opposition, with one exception, when Satan rebelled against him, and was cast down. What the Bible says is that his kingdom will not stay enthroned in heaven. It will one day be brought to the new earth. We spent many, many months going through the book of Revelation. We looked at the, the end times and the events of the end times. And we know that the day is going to come when all of the elements and the heavens and the earth will burn with a fervent heat. They will be burned up and cleansed. And then the Lord will create a new heavens and a new earth. And on that new earth, there will be a throne. Revelation 
22.3 says, No longer will there be anything accursed on the earth, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. Well, this is why when Jesus teaches us to pray, in the Lord's Prayer, Matthew 6.10, we pray what? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The original biblical text, the original language text, had no punctuation. We have to reason out how would it have been punctuated. I think it would have been punctuated this way. Thy kingdom come, colon. Thy kingdom come, which means your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When you pray, Lord, your kingdom come, you are praying that his will be accomplished as perfectly and wonderfully and gloriously as it is on this earth, as it is in heaven. You're praying for him to invade this rebellious world and establish his throne on the earth. That's an external kingdom. And we, see, we even see a prophecy of this in Daniel chapter 2. Nebuchadnezzar, the pagan king, dreams of a massive statue. The head is gold. The chest and the arms are silver. The stomach and the thighs are bronze. The legs are iron. The feet are iron and clay mixed. And in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, you remember, he sees a stone that is cut out without human hands. And it strikes the statue. And the statue is so utterly destroyed that it turns to dust and it is blown away by the wind and it no longer exists. And then the stone grows until it becomes a mighty mountain. Nebuchadnezzar had no idea what it meant. He ends up with Daniel and Daniel says, God can tell you what it means. The statue is the kingdoms of the world. The greatest kingdom, the head of gold, is your kingdom, Nebuchadnezzar. And there are going to be lesser kingdoms that fall, follow from silver to bronze to iron to clay and iron. <clears throat> but the day is coming when the kingdom of God, created without human hands, will destroy every earthly kingdom. And they will be blown away like dust. And then the kingdom of God will grow to fill everything and be everywhere. So the United States of America is a temporary kingdom. No better. It won't last forever. It won't be here forever. The United Kingdom, the kingdom of Saudi Arabia, the nations of the world, the countries of the world are just temporary kingdoms. Some better than others? Yes, of course. And we can say that objectively. We can look at a, a variety of ways of measuring what's good and what's bad. But none of them will endure forever. There will be an external kingdom of God established on the new earth. And the Lord himself will rule on that throne now, since it's an external kingdom and it has not yet taken place, then obviously that kingdom is a future reality. We talked about it being an inner reality and an external reality. We talked about it being a present reality because it's inner, but it's a future reality.
is because it is external. Hebrews 2.8 says very clearly that we do not yet see all things subjected to Jesus Christ. That'll be the big sign when you see everything subjected to Christ. 1 Corinthians 15 says, says Jesus will subject everything to the Father. And everything will be subjected to God. Everything will be under His authority. And again, that's why we pray in Matthew 6, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's future. We pray for that. We look at the circumstances of this world. We look at the, the, the holocaust of abortion. And we see that, that this is not yet what the Lord would have. This is not yet what he is creating. I think we went past the video. We'll play it at the end of the service. But there's about a, a minute and a half of video that was taken on Friday in Washington, D.C. And you can see as the woman taking the video turns around, the, the many, many, many people in Washington, D.C. marching, singing, praying for the sake of life. We do that because it's opposed. There's so many other things that are still wrong, that are still ungodly. But tell us it's not here yet. So the kingdom of God is his rule and reign, first and foremost. It's internal within every Christian right now. And we are called to live according to that. And that means it's present right now. And the kingdom of God is an external reality. God is in his heaven ruling now. And one day he will bring his throne to earth, the new earth. And he will reign over the entire universe from there. So the message of John the Baptist was the kingdom of heaven is at hand. How were people to uh, respond to that message? What on earth is God doing? He's bringing his kingdom. How on earth are we to respond? We are to repent. We are to repent. Repentance is a change of heart and mind which brings about a change in behavior. Repentance is a change of heart and mind that brings about a change of behavior. Paul wrote Titus and said this, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, repentance, and live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, obedience. Repentance is a change of heart and mind, which brings about a change of behavior. Repentance always begins in the heart. Repentance never begins with behavior. And that's because uh, repentance is not regret. Repentance is not remorse. Repentance is not a decision to stop doing certain things because they're not healthy. 
or because they're not good for you or they're not good for other people. Repentance means being convinced in your heart that you are a sinner. Repentance means knowing that you're under the judgment of God. And because of that knowledge and the reality of that, turning away from the sin that deserves the judgment of God and turning toward God and His mercy. It's actually very simple. Repentance means to turn, literally, to change the mind, and that change of mind brings a change of behavior. The gospel call is a call to repent and believe the gospel, to believe the gospel and repent. They, they go together. But this requires the intimate involvement of the Holy Spirit. No sinner can repent on their own. Romans 8, 8 says, no one, who in, no one in the flesh can please God. Those who are still in their flesh, those who are still spiritually dead, cannot please God. No one is saved because they begin the process by repentance. Repentance is really one of the first fruits of salvation and transformation. Let me just very briefly run down the stages of salvation. There are three. The first stage of salvation is effectual calling. In effectual calling, the Holy Spirit enables preaching of the word that actually transforms sinners. And he enables the sinner to hear in such a way that they are changed. When he calls us out of the world and into Christ, we answer that call. It's effectual. The word effectual simply means actually achieving something. The Spirit of God softens the sinner's hardened heart and conscience and grants them faith in the word that has been preached. That's effectual calling. It's followed by justification. In justification, the Holy Spirit forgives the sins of the sinner and removes the stain of sin and then imputes to them the very righteousness of Christ himself. So the sinner receives credit for the sinless perfection of Jesus and is established as holy in the eyes of God. So what's happened? The Word of God has been preached. The Holy Spirit causes the sinner to hear and understand. And the Spirit of God softens the heart. And the Spirit of God grants faith in that truth. And then the Spirit of God takes away sin and the stain of sin and the guilt of sin. And then grants the full righteousness of Christ and, and then I think that this next part is where the Spirit of God makes it eternal and irrevocable because in the next part, in sanctification, the first thing that happens is the sinner is joined with Jesus in his death. And then the sinner is raised with Jesus from the dead. So you hear the gospel... The Holy Spirit enables you to understand the gospel. He softens your heart. He grants you faith in what has been preached. He takes away your sins. He gives you and credits you with the very righteousness of Christ, and then you die. And having died, your record is closed. 
right? And then he raises you from the dead. But because you've died with Christ, there's no more notes to your record. It's something only God can do. And it's at that point then the sinner repents. It's at that point that the sinner makes this willing decision, conscious decision to turn away. You have to understand this. The preaching of the gospel might go on for decades. The hearing of the gospel might go on for decades. The softening might be a process in time. But when the Holy Spirit gives faith, takes away sin grants righteousness, joins you with Christ on the cross, and raises you with Jesus from the dead, that's an instant in time. It's a snap of a finger. It's faster than the snap of a finger. It's an instantaneous act. And so what happens is, and all of our mileage differs, right? All of our mileage differs. We all had different experiences of this. Some were very young. Some were older. I was 17. I'm driving down the road in the mountains. I am not a Christian, I don't believe, I am not repentant, and in the twinkling of an eye, my heart is broken, I do believe, and I long to turn away from my sin and, and run to my Savior. What did I do to cause that? Nothing. He did it. He did it within me. That's why evangelism has to be attended with prayer, because it's not our work. Our work is the, is the preaching of the word, and we pray that the Lord would make our preaching effective, but everything else is him. Everything else is him. And as a result of that repentance, the person begins to live in true obedience to the Lord, and that trend of, of obedience continues on. We're not going to hit it perfectly. We're not going to hit it perfectly. And I'll let you into a little secret about me. I get worried about me. Because I've, I've been a Christian now for, for 40 years, more than 40 years. And I'm nowhere near where I ought to be. If I'd been a Christian for 10 years, I'd be kind of impressed with myself right now. But after 40 years, it's like, what's wrong with me? But because by the grace of God, I died with Christ... And at that moment, my record of sin and righteousness was sealed. And then I was raised with him. I don't need to be afraid. I don't need to be afraid. I need to be humble. I need to be repentant. I need to be confessing my sin. But not out of fear. Out of a hunger and a desire to be like our Lord. Let's bring this home. First and foremost, our God reigns. He is the mighty one. He is the awesome one. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. Our God is not indifferent and removed from his creation, sitting on a cloud somewhere not caring. He has made all things for his glory, and he will reign for all eternity. He's not a president or a prime minister that's elected by us and then serves a term and then faces term limits and has to give it up. He is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, our God, our King, our Lord. His 
authority extends over everything that has been made. From a, a single subatomic particle to the, the grandest objects in the universe. And that includes overall humanity. Second, God is in control. He remains in control in spite of the rebellion of Satan and the fallen angels and of sinful man. The Lord remains firmly on his throne. Psalm 2 gives a very clear picture of God on his throne seeing the the mocking rebellion of man saying we're going to get rid of God we're going to cast him away we're going to throw him away we're going to break his chains off of us we're going to tear up his bible and burn it and and God is not up there wringing his hands hoping that they don't get away with it he mocks them and laughs at the stupidity of those efforts you older ones remember Madeline Murray O'Hare who back in the 1960s sued, took it all the way to the Supreme Court to have prayer taken out of public schools. She decided that she was an atheist when she was in her teen years, and she went out and she shouted at the sky, if there's a God, strike me dead. And he didn't, and so there must not be a God. She assumed that a lack of response was non-existence. The fact that God has not yet called an end to our rebellion is not a sign of weakness or indecision on his part, but of mercy and of love. It's not frailty that causes him to defer judgment. It's strength. He's not afraid of us. He loves Third, God's kingdom is inward, outward, present, and future. It is present now within his people. He rules within his people. His law rules within his people. We are to be people who live according to the law. Not for the sake of salvation. Not for the sake of earning our salvation. That's pure grace. That's pure mercy. It comes as a gift. But having been granted that gift and having been granted repentance, we are now freed from the chains of sin that kept us disobedient. And we are freed to obey. What are we to obey? We're to obey our God. I heard a portion of a debate between an atheist and a Christian in England last week, and I couldn't believe it. The atheist said, If there really was a God who wanted us to live a certain way, he would have told us. (laughs) It's like, are you kidding? Hello? But that's what he's done, is he's told us how to live, how we are to be. His kingdom is present, here and now. And his kingdom is coming. And he will reign over every creature with absolute power and sovereignty for his glory. And we will share that with him. And fourth, there is only one right response to this message. And you know what it is. Repent. 
Think about that for a minute. John doesn't say the kingdom of God is at hand. Despair. John doesn't say the kingdom of God is at hand. Be afraid as you've never feared before. John doesn't say the kingdom of God is at hand. Those of you who are really good are okay. John says the kingdom of God is at hand. And and as Paul wrote in Acts 17, the times of ignorance God has overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because the day of judgment is coming. You're forewarned that day is coming. There's nobody who is ignored in the command to repent. There's nobody so good they don't need to repent. Just Jesus was sinless. This is not a cultural truth. I've been told that Christianity is a white man's religion, and I point out Jesus wasn't white. He wasn't European. I've been told that Christianity is a a sexist religion, but in Christ there is no male or female. Man and woman are made in the image of God. I've been told that Christianity is an economic religion. It's all about who has the money and the power. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I've been told Christianity is a generational thing. Every one one of us were children once. The men that I read, the men that I have such huge respect for, going back centuries, some of them were children. They were taught and they were affected by others. Jesus himself was a child. The kingdom of God is at hand. That's our message. Repent. That's the application. Father, we thank you for your love for us, for your grace to us. We ask, Lord, that we would continue to understand the simplicity of the gospel and the beauty of the gospel. We acknowledge that we get tired. (coughs) We acknowledge that our own failure and our own inability to live perfectly according to your law is very discouraging. And Lord, we acknowledge that the fact that there is still rebellion and sin in the world is discouraging. There is still death. There is still hatred. There's still jealousy. So would you would you continue to persuade us as your people of the reality of your kingdom and the presence of your kingdom within us and the promise of your kingdom to come. It will not remain within us forever. 
you will establish your throne on this earth in Israel. Grant us that hope and encourage us, Lord, as we seek to live in faith and obedience to you. We pray this and ask this in the precious name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.